God uses his people to carry out his plans. And that's why it's so necessary for us to cooperate with his will. But his people need to be molded and challenged and directed into that will. And in the story of Joseph and his brothers, the Lord has a big plan that involves saving the whole world from a devastating famine and establishing the roots of his people Israel to become a blessing to all nations. In keeping with that plan, he has orchestrated events that caused Joseph to be carried down to Egypt, where he became prime minister in charge of gathering and distributing grain that would sustain the world. And we have seen that Joseph has been cooperating with God's program, and through his uh, God-given wisdom and discretion, uh, and not being overcome by circumstances, he is being used by the Lord. Now, his family, however, has been guilty of favoritism and envy and hatred and strife. And none of these deficiencies can be used of God to fulfill his purposes. Joseph and his brothers must be reconciled. The family must be unified, standing together in love and loyalty in order for God to make of them his promised nation. The road to reconciliation is difficult, and it's been traveled unknowingly by his brothers since they headed to Egypt the first time. And God has been using Joseph to guide them into right relationship where they can be forgiven, where they can live in harmony, and where the nation of Israel can be built. Now, Joseph's method involves a number of tests to see if his brothers are different now than they were 20 years before. The first time they come to Egypt, Joseph tests their fidelity. They said they were honest men, but was that indeed true? They would pass this test by bringing to Egypt their youngest brother, whom they said was left home with their elderly father. That test uh, comes to fruition They come back to Egypt. Benjamin is with them in chapter 43. Then Joseph tested their jealousy by showing favoritism to Benjamin so he could observe their responses. Had they transferred their envy and hatred for Joseph to his younger brother? Well, this test they also pass. Yet there is one more necessary test on the road to reconciliation, and that is a test of love and loyalty. If a situation arose similar to that of Joseph's, would they show love to Benjamin by rescuing him from slavery, or would they cut their losses and return home without him? Neither Israel nor the church can survive if its people are dishonest, envious, disloyal, or loveless. Such sins must be confessed to assure harmony and love among the brethren. When confession is delayed, it hinders God's broader program of evangelism and edification. So the application of our passage this morning is just as pertinent today as it was in Joseph's day. So let's ask God's blessing on it. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word again today, 
We just pray for your guidance. We pray, Lord, for the leading of the Spirit of God to work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to see that we will be tested in our relationship to one another oftentimes. Uh, Do we express love? Do we express loyalty? Are we just out for ourselves? Are you changing us into the image of Christ? So, Lord, as we look here today, we pray uh, that you'll speak to our hearts. Help us to make application in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the final step in the road reconciliation runs through chapter 44 and into chapter 45. And this is how it falls out. First of all, Joseph sets the stage to test his brothers in verses 1 through 13. And here we find that before reconciliation or forgiveness can take place, one must be confronted with sin. If you don't recognize the need, the problem can't be resolved. Then we find that Judah confesses the brother's corporate sin in verses 14 through 17. And confession of sin and acceptance of its consequences is necessary for restoration. Thirdly, in the rest of chapter 44, Judah evidences loyal love. And confession of sin is genuine then it's going to change our character, and given an opportunity for a second chance, things are going to be different. And this paves the way for Joseph then to fully disclose himself to his brothers in chapter 45. So let's take a look, first of all, this morning, as Joseph sets the stage to test his brother's love and loyalty. And uh, he's again concocted this uh, situation, and he's in cahoots with his steward to actually plant evidence on his youngest brother, Benjamin. And the story flows from 43, goes right into the events of the next day. He commanded the steward of his house, saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, Also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. All right, so Joseph instructs his steward exactly what he wants to do. Fill the brother's grain sacks again. Give them back all the money. But this time put his special silver cup in the sack of Benjamin, the youngest. So he's planting evidence to test their attitudes when that evidence gets discovered. And Joseph informs the steward uh, exactly how he wants to confront the brothers as they leave and head back for Egypt. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkey. And when they had gone out of the city and were not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, get up, Follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. All right, so he wants these men to understand, you have repaid evil for good. This is a theme that's been playing out in the whole story of Joseph. We have found that Joseph was a good son, even though he was favored by his father. 
We see little negative about him in the whole story. But his brothers portray to us another picture. They have done evil things. You remember the story of Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah, the first four sons. All of them have uh, narratives about sins that they have committed. And then, of course, all the brothers combined in selling Joseph into slavery because of their envy and their hatred of him. Their guilt has been revealed, but so far they have not really confessed it. They have just felt the gnawing results of it over years of time. Now, Joseph has treated them well by sending them home again with these goods, but it will now appear that they have done evil again in stealing one of his valuables. And the silver cup is part of the ruse. Now, it's more than a drinking cup. Uh, Joseph and the steward are portraying it as a divining cup. And uh, in the ancient times, such uh, items were used to try to determine the future or to try to determine truth from wrong or the reason why something bad was happening. And of course, they used it to consult their false gods. Now, we know that Joseph really had no need for such a thing and did not use such a thing because he was given the wisdom of God and he could interpret dreams. But he wants it to appear that he uses such things to put the fear of God in these men and again convey to them his power and his uh, authority uh, to judge and to show them that they're not going to get away with anything. Now, uh, his purpose then is to frame the brothers and show them they cannot get away with their sin. And as the steward comes, he is to charge them with this and tell them you've done evil, and that's going to serve to remind them not so much of the present predicament, but connect it to the uh, initial evil they did to Joseph so many years ago. Okay, so the steward comes, um, verse uh, 6. He overtook them, and he spoke them these same words. So he carries out Joseph's desires, and they respond very strongly. They said, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from our Lord's house? Okay, so they're with one voice proclaiming their innocence here. Now they thought by this time that they had proved their integrity and they're now safely on their way back home with all the things necessary for life. But now they're faced with this new accusation. It's like it's happening all over again. They strongly deny any wrongdoing, and it would have been extremely counterproductive for them uh, and senseless, really, to bring down their money, all the money that they had done previously, plus what they were buying new grain with, and then run off with something that was uh, of high value to Joseph. And to strengthen their position, they then make a rash statement in verse 9. With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. 
Now, if they thought that through, they probably would not have been that strong in their response. But you can understand when you're falsely accused of something uh, that you're going to remonstrate as loudly as you can and say things that will prove your position. Uh, So at least they're all standing together and they're equally offended at this point, not knowing that the evidence has already been planted in Benjamin's sack. So the story goes on, things don't get better, they get a whole lot worse, and they're playing into Joseph's scheme whereby he can tell if their attitudes have changed or not. And so we have the discovery of the uh, silver goblet and the ensuing misery upon the family. So the steward then takes them at their word. In verse 10 he says, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. So he's softening the field here. Uh, First of all, there's not going to be any death. But if the person did take it, they're going to become my slave. He'll deliver him to Joseph, and then Joseph will determine what's going to happen to that person. And uh, nobody else is going to be uh, blameworthy here. We're just going to deal with the issue, the one person who it's found with. All right. So again, uh, uh, circumstances are brought to bear here. The steward knows what's going on. And he knows this is going to single out the favored son, Benjamin, create circumstances like that of Joseph, the favored son who was taken into slavery. Now the same thing's playing over again, only with Benjamin. So, uh, as they quickly, in verse 11, uh, unpack their donkeys and open their sacks, The tension, I'm sure, is building. Uh, The steward searches each one in order again, which, you know, you got to be thinking about that. How would he know the birth order? He begins with Reuben. And uh, these guys all think they're innocent and uh, nothing strange is happening. Nothing found in his sack. Goes down to Simeon, then to Levi, then to Judah, And they're probably all snickering and maybe smirking. You see, we told you so. They get all the way down to Benjamin. By this time, they're probably thinking they're scot-free. You know, Benjamin would never do this. So they are all the while uh, maybe breathing a bit of a sigh of relief. They think they're finally going to go home free. But as one commentator put it, it seemed as if everywhere they turned, they heard an echo of their treatment of their brother Joseph. And so what happens? Well, the cup is found. And it's found in the worst possible place, Benjamin's sack. Now, knowing what these brothers had been like, what would you expect their reaction to be? Benjamin, you idiot! How in the world did that get in your sack? What are you doing? You know what? You deserve to be a slave for being so stupid. We're heading home. See you later. But that's not the response that we find here. We look at verse 12. As he begins this search, 
He finds the sack uh, uh, with the goblet. And then, verse 13, they tore their clothes, loaded their donkeys, and came back to the city. Not what you would really expect from them at this point. So, they're in anguish. You know the, uh, the ancient uh, ripping of clothes signifies how upset and distraught you are. And the reaction is really kind of a mirror image of their father Jacob two decades ago when he heard about his son's death. What did he do? He tore his clothes because of the grief. And now these men are experiencing a bit of that grief as they presume what's going to happen to their brother and how that's going to affect their father. They know it's not going to be a good outcome. But whether Benjamin was guilty or not, they're going to throw their lot in with him and they're all going to go back to Egypt with him. So to their credit, they remain loyal to their brother. They're taking his side. They're not going to abandon him to a fate similar to that of Joseph. So their attitude is changed from that outcome. Now, when they come back, of course, they've got to face Joseph. And again, Joseph knows exactly what's going on. He knows what's uh, happening. He's, he's getting his plan fulfilled here. And as they come before him, we see that Judah takes the leadership position and he begins to uh, 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 come humbly before uh, Joseph and uh, play into this ploy and confess the sin of the family. They came to his house in verse 14. He's still there, probably waiting. And they fell before him on the ground the fourth time. That dream is fulfilled. They threw themselves on the ground, not this time out of deference and respect, but out of fear of what was going to happen and seeking mercy from Joseph. And Joseph's accusation then sets the tone. What deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? Now let's make a point here. Joseph does not say he practices divination, but he wants to come across as though he does. Because again, they would be familiar with this kind of thing. Uh, it, it It may set the stage for them being more fearful. At any rate, they know it plays into Joseph's anger and the idea that they haven't been able to get away with a whole lot over the last uh, uh, several occasions where they, with, where they have been with their brother Joseph, not knowing again who it is. So, given a situation where the favored son is threatened with slavery, what are they going to do? So the scenario is setting up a situation that's going to test their loyalty, test their love. Now let's take a look at Judah's confession. Again, he takes the lead. He's the spokesman. And uh, we know that later on he will be prophesied to have a leadership position 
in the nation of Israel. So uh, as he comes before Joseph, this is what he says. And he is quite humble. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How shall we clear ourselves? You know what he's saying? He's saying the circumstantial evidence is too powerful to deny. They've been caught red-handed. Now, no, no doubt Benjamin's been denying that he took the cup. He's probably more amazed than his brother that the cup's there because he knows he didn't take it. But they don't know that. What would it seem like to them? There it is in his sack. How can he say he's not taking it? Um, you know, to them, he's guilty. But instead of letting him suffer the consequences, Judah and his brothers are also willing to suffer the consequences. They remain loyal to each other as he goes on and says here uh, in verse uh, six, uh, 16, Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. So they're not going to let him stand alone. They're going to remain unified and loyal to each other, all for one and one for all. But here is the most important thing. Their past iniquity still weighs in the balance. This is revealed in Judah's words as he says in verse 16 again, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Now think about that. Why did he say God has found out the iniquity? It wasn't God, it was Joseph. Why did he say my Lord has found out the iniquity? Well, once again, it reveals something deeper than the theft of the cup. The providence of God always hovering in the background of these men since they went down to Egypt the first time. Sometimes present difficulties may be the result of past sins, and current circumstances bring back their remembrance to us. Everything Joseph has devised connects back to their initial sin, as you remember back in chapter 42 and verse 41 what did they say? They say, the Lord, or, or they, they remember what they had done. They know that it was uh, sinful, and that whole situation brought it back to their mind. Now, the narrator, and Joseph, the steward, and the reader all know these men are innocent. But the circumstances once again opens up their guilt concerning Joseph. Their minds constantly turn back to that issue, revealing their iniquity. And Judah's statement then is a humble confession, not so much to the stealing of the silver chalice as the broader issue of mistreating and abusing their brother that got him in this situation in the first place. And they're willing now to accept responsibility for what they have done by sharing in Benjamin's fate. They'll become Joseph's slaves as a whole family. 
So this is really the turning point, the confession that eventually is going to lead out to the family's reconciliation. Now Joseph responds in verse 17, Far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. As for you, go up in peace to your father. So by saying that, Joseph is showing us that his purpose in doing this wasn't for the sake of retribution. It wasn't for the sake of getting back at his brothers and putting them in a situation that they put him in. No, he's concerned about the way to reconciliation. They're now able to go free. He will not keep them all as slaves, but the stage is set now. They have confessed sin, they've demonstrated solidarity, but now will they stay or will they go? They have the opportunity to repeat the same sin they committed against uh, Joseph, leave their brother in Egypt, and go back home to Canaan. So what's going to happen? Well, we see another great event as Judah evidences loyal love. And he's speaking in private, but he's really kind of speaking for uh, the brothers and conveying their their feelings towards uh, Joseph. All right, so he takes center stage, beginning in verse 18, with the longest speech we have in the book of Genesis. And his plea is a revelation which reveals changed character. One commentator wrote, this scene exposes the anatomy of reconciliation. In the crucible of the crisis, the brothers respond with compassion and self-sacrifice. So Judah's loyalty and love is demonstrated in three ways here. First of all, as he recites and gives a tender review of the circumstances leading up to this confrontation. Judah comes in and he asks for a private conversation. Verse 18. Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. And he repeats this idea of servant over and over and over again. So that's one of the key words here. A servant, an underling going to one who is more powerful and seeking to assuage their anger, seeking to receive their mercy. And note, he understands here that this man has the same power as Pharaoh. This man can uh, free them. This man can make them slaves. This man has the power of life and death. He's got the power of grace and mercy. So he comes humbly before him, to ask him to listen uh, to what he has to say. So what he does is he begins to recite these two trips and uh, the whole situation that really Joseph brought about. Joseph forced all of this. He got the information that he needed, and now he's going back and he's reciting this in as compassionate way he he can to uh, persuade Joseph to be merciful to the family. In verse 19, my Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we do, we have a father, an old man. Incidentally, 
the term father occurs 14 times. So uh, he's conveying this idea of father-son family relationship. Pharaoh's like a father to Egypt. Uh, Jacob was the father of Joseph. He's the father of Benjamin. He's the father of all these sons. So he repeats this a number of times. Okay, we do have a father, but he's an old man. Jacob's over 100 by now. He's an old man. And he had a child of his old age. The last son born was Benjamin. Jacob was way older when when he came into the world. So there again, uh, he's an elderly man. He's an old man. He's got this youngest son, and he's really attached to him. His brother is dead. That's the first time they make that kind of a confession. And that kind of conveys to us that the brothers believe that Joseph was dead by now. All right? So again, the one child's dead. The other one's the only one alive. Drawing at his uh, strings of compassion. He's the only one left of his mother's children. And his father loves him. His father dotes on him. They know this. They've accepted this. And uh, it appears that they're letting this go. It's not becoming a situation where it's continuing to to, uh, divide the family and cause all kinds of strife. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. Okay, so... We did that, but then he goes on to say, uh, We told you the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. So they were concerned about that. But Joseph come back, came back and said, Okay, unless you do that, then uh, you're not going to see me. So that's the situation that brought about the need to go back. They delayed because they were afraid to go back. Jacob wouldn't let them go back. He didn't want to send his son. So again, he's, he's reciting the situation in a compassionate way to get Joseph to relent or to be merciful to them. Then he repeats the discourse concerning the return trip in verse 24. <clears throat> so it was, when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And, of course, time passes. Jacob says, go back and buy us a little food. Well, we know how that situation turned out. We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will uh, go down. But if he doesn't go down, we aren't going to go down there because we're not going to be able to see him. We're going to put ourselves in danger. So that's... Uh, how they got to the situation where they are right now. Then in verse 27, your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. The one went out from me and said, surely he is torn to pieces and I have not seen him since. What Judah mentions here replays their iniquity concerning Joseph. Their father was bereaved of his wife. Then he's bereaved of the beloved son. And now there's a threat concerning the second son who also is loved and favored. And this is the first time that Joseph would have heard any explanation from the sons or from Jacob 
as to his disappearance, that somehow he had been torn to pieces. So how must Judah have felt when he repeated this sad story, knowing his complicity and the evil that brought it about? It's again playing into, into this idea of confession. Now, no wonder Jacob felt as he did that he could not bear the loss of his second son, and that's why he was reticent in sending him down there. So this review of the circumstances weaves again into the guilt of the brothers, their recognition of what they had done, and their growing concern and uh, care for their father as a result of that over this lengthy period of time. Now, in verses 30 to 32, Judah's callousness is replaced with compassion. And this is central to Judah's changed attitude and is essential for reconciliation to take place. In verse 30, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. Judah again showing a concern that he had not previously had for his father Jacob. Jacob's affections have not changed. He, he still is bound up in his love for Benjamin. And that word means that this is a strong bond, it's an indissoluble bond. And Judah accepts this truth. He's no longer envious or full of hatred about it. He states it like it is. And now he's sure that if he is to return home without his little brother... It's going to be the death of Jacob, and he doesn't want to bear that grief, and he doesn't want to bear that responsibility. Judah also mentions that he has been willing to become security for his brother, which is, again, a sign of loyal love. For your servant became surety, in verse 2, for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. So he's willing to take responsibility for whatever happens to Benjamin. Uh, this is something he had not been willing to do for Joseph. And we think back to that story. Although Judah is the one that pre prevented the brothers from killing Joseph, he was the main player in getting him sold to the Midianites. But now he's willing to protect Benjamin and be fully responsible for any harm that may come to him over it. He's willing to take upon himself any punishment for not keeping his vow in regard to his brother. Now you remember that Judah, with his brothers, had callously presented to Joseph the torn and bloodied tunic of uh, rather presented to Jacob that born, uh, that bloody tunic and made him believe that Joseph was dead. And fully knowing that he was alive, they let their father assume something that was false. And now he fears, though, that he's going to be the cause of his father's death 
if he can't take back Benjamin with him. So we see this change from being callous to being compassionate. Finally, Judah's hatred and envy is replaced by sacrificial love. Verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. The brother's relationship to Joseph had been characterized by hatred. So much so that he and his brothers could not even speak peaceably to each other. He was envious of his dreams, of his favored position. And these were the motivations behind getting rid of him for good. But his attitude toward Benjamin now, no less favored than Joseph, is entirely different. Judah is willing to sacrifice himself for his brother Benjamin. And here's the climax of the scene. The less loved son is willing to take the place of the favored son. And this is the first instance in the Bible where a human being is willing to free another by taking his place. And this is the epitome of godly love. Being willing to lay down your life for the sake of another, becoming loyal to the point of self-sacrifice. And only God can make such a change in one's life. Judah and his brothers have passed the test of love and loyalty and paved the way to reconciliation. So now Joseph is able to fully disclose himself to his family. Well, let's draw some applications this morning as we close. First of all, unconfessed sins of the past mar relationships in the present. How many hearts have been broken How many families divided? How many churches split? Because the guilt of past sins was not broken by confession. Restoration and harmony cannot take place if we're not willing to acknowledge and confess our part in broken relationships. Then God providentially creates circumstances in our life to remind us of sin that has marred relationships. He used Joseph to bring to mind his brother's past sins, confess their iniquity so they could be reconciled as a family. When God brings to your mind, your remembrance, some broken relationship that hasn't yet been healed, what is your response to that? And then we see that genuine confession of sin leads to a change in behavior. When presented with a similar situation to that of Joseph, his brothers responded in an entirely different fashion than uh, they did when Joseph came to meet them many, many years before. This time, they stick together. They remain loyal to each other, even when one appears to be guilty. And we can only move forward and prosper when we're willing to confess our failures, which they did. 
And from that point, healing could ensue. We also see in typology in our passage this morning. Judah is a type of Christ in this scene. Not, of course, for any past sins he's done, but his willingness to exchange places with his apparently guilty brother. He was willing to take Benjamin's punishment upon himself. And this is what the Lord Jesus did for us at Calvary. He took our guilt upon himself. He became our substitute for the punishment of sin. And we, of course, deserve to die for our iniquities, but he died in our place. And then we close this morning. How do we show loyal love to our families, our friends, our church, and the lost? How are we displaying Christ's love and loyalty for others? Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would teach us these valuable lessons from the story of Judah's confession. Help us, Lord, to realize that we're responsible to heal broken relationships, to confess our sins that may have been involved in causing them. And Lord, to realize that we really hinder your program if we fail to do that. We're also thankful, Lord, for the lesson of substitutionary sacrifice. And we pray, Lord, you help us to demonstrate loyal love to each other by putting ourselves above others and uh, uh, doing all that we can to keep the, uh, the peace and the unity that you desire among your people in the church. And use that to promote your program of evangelism and edification in the world. We ask you to speak to our hearts in these ways. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.